The wearied captain paced the deck of his ship with bloodshot eyes and impaired vision. Squinting towards the shore, he was certain they had found something remarkable. For the past three months, he had pressed his crew to make the arduous journey across the Atlantic. Through storm-tossed seas, windless doldrums, and razor-sharp sunlight they had endured. A day earlier, they had passed through a channel they named the Dragon's Mouth. Now they rested in a bay that was fed from a river so full and grand, the captain knew it could not come from a small island. He had found a previously unknown continent. The journey had been worth it. Stepping from the stern into his quarters, he pulls out a quill and dips it into the ink. And as the creaking boards of the ship sang out their somber notes, while the ocean swells raised and lowered the boat, the captain steadied his hand and wrote the following words. The Holy Scriptures record that our Lord made the earthly paradise and planted in it the tree of life. And then springs a fountain from which the four principal rivers of the world take their source. I am convinced that it is the spot of the earthly paradise, whether no one can go but by God's permission. I think also that the water I have described may proceed from it, though it be far off, and that stopping at the place I have just left, it forms this lake. There are great indications of this being the terrestrial paradise. For its situation coincides with the opinions of the holy and wise theologians, and moreover, the other evidences agree with the supposition. For I've neither read or heard of fresh water coming in so large a quantity in close conjunction with the water of the sea. The more I reason on the subject, the more satisfied I have become that the terrestrial paradise is situated in the spot I have described. May it please the Lord to grant your highness a long life and health and peace. Christopher Columbus, August 1498. Welcome truth seekers, Bible enthusiasts, and amateur historians from all across the globe. Co-host Brad Horton here, and we are delighted to be joined by our other co-host, Dr. Eric Armstrong. We are finally here in the studio. This has been, oh, about six months in the making since we first talked about this and uh, uh, began to have to learn a lot of what goes on in podcasting. That uh, takes a little bit of time, I guess. Absolutely. Vacation Bible school this summer, uh, to be exact. And, you know, I certainly on my end, I what you might consider technologically challenged. So all the uh, all the information that goes into learning how to do a podcast, I think I certainly slowed our team down here on my end, but certainly glad to be doing this nonetheless. Yeah, and with that in mind, 
with it. We we hope that you'll kind of bear with us these first several episodes, hopefully as we learn more and more uh, about recording, editing, and being able to put out these episodes. Um, hopefully you'll get to enjoy them more and more as well, but a lot of learning that, that goes on with it. And uh, hopefully you'll be interested in what we've been looking at these past six months. And if we had all the money in the world, we would have gone to ancient monasteries and pulled out some old manuscripts, maybe visited some well-known museums around the world and uh, perused their archives and maybe even gone on a dig or two to see what we could find underneath the dirt. But with books and with the internet, uh, there's some amazing information we found on each of these subjects. Absolutely. And just really looking forward to bringing them to you. And certainly, as, as Pastor Eric said, I wish we could tell you we had some exciting excavations, but our time has been spent in the library and online. Uh, but there's obviously a wealth of information online these days. So again, really excited to be here. And it's taken us maybe a little longer to get off the ground than we would have liked, but we're here, we're getting started, and we're making progress. And again, super excited about that. And with that, we finally get to dive into the first subject, which you heard a little bit about in the preview. So, as you might have guessed from our introduction here, um, the beginning was about Christopher Columbus. And obviously, we're not the only ones to be interested in the Garden of Eden. It's something that mankind has been searching for for millennia, literally. And, you know, Columbus wasn't the only one that was searching for Eden. In fact, we have the Spanish explorer and conquistador Juan Ponce de Leon also was in search of Eden, at least indirectly. Basically, we've got the year 1512, King Ferdinand of Spain wanted to reward Ponce de Leon for his loyalty, and he commissioned an exploration to the New World. So, obviously, the king wants to extend the Spanish Empire, the glory of the empire, all that good stuff, and Ponce de Leon was told that he could be the governor of the lands that he discovered, uh, which, of course, he was with Puerto Rico. And I've actually visited his grave in San Juan, a really, really cool place if you ever get the chance. So anyway, Ponce de Leon had heard of a Caribbean island where there were miraculous waters, what we would call the Fountain of Youth today. They didn't necessarily call it the Fountain of Youth per se in that time, but the Fountain of Youth this spring, this water was purported to be located in the Garden of Eden. And this was a legend that held track during Ponce de Leon's time. Um, you find this, so in essence, you find this fountain of youth, you found Eden. And so 1513, Ponce de Leon sets out from Puerto Rico in search of the fountain of youth, in search of the Garden of Eden, and mistakenly lands on the eastern coast of Florida. He's also credited with discovering Florida and naming Florida, which means flowers. Um, so the search for Eden, it's gone on for centuries. And then fast forward to more modern times, we have uh, Dr. Jody Magnus, an archaeologist, floated a theory in 2017 that the Garden of Eden was located in Jerusalem and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, to be exact, which um, it's one of the traditional locations for Christ's crucifixion, burial, and subsequent resurrection. So basically underneath the outcropping in Golgotha, if that's where Golgotha actually is, uh, Dr. Magnus floated that Adam is buried there. There's a chapel of Adam below the church, below the rocks, which has been discovered, uh, I believe maybe even renovated a bit. 
but the idea being this is where God dwelt. And Dr. Magnus obviously is not a believer, and she thinks that Eden is just a metaphor for where God's presence dwells and thinks it's just a, you know, a myth that's been made up, a la the Ark of the Covenant, Solomon's Temple, which we know God's presence dwelt um, in the temple, um, and over the Ark, in the Ark, um, and Never mind the account in Genesis uh, contradicts Dr. Magnus's theory, but it's an interesting theory nonetheless. It shows that believer, non-believer alike have been searching for Eden for millennia. Um, and point being, since mankind was expelled from Eden, we've been searching for it. And so, Pastor, why has the Garden of Eden captured the minds of so many since basically the beginning of time? It's a good question. That's interesting to think of all the different places that people have hoped to find it. Uh, and it has captured the minds and imaginations of many. Uh, and we have to understand why it has. And to grasp that, we got to go back to the Bible. You see, we get our description of the Garden Eden from the pages of Scripture. But in, by, in the Bible, we have to go back, right back to the beginning, to the pages of Genesis and to a time when the world was still brand new. After creating the heavens and earth, we read about the garden in Genesis 2, 8 through 15. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So in, in many ways, the Garden of Eden here is the birthplace of mankind. This is the place that the Adam and the Eve called home, and what a home it was. I mean, no matter what images of, of beauty might come to mind when you think of a garden, uh, this one was infinitely better. I don't know if you've ever traveled and seen some of these gardens around castles or even just some, some city parks that are well manicured. I mean, this is a garden designed by God himself. It was lush and it was vibrant. You have to imagine trees and, and fruit in abundance, flowers and vines perfectly arrayed, soft thick grass upon which to walk. Perhaps the smell of fruit hung heavy in the air, and all you had to do was walk up to a tree, take a bite out of perfectly ripe produce. Animals must have populated the landscape, scurrying about, flitting around, birds of the air, beasts of the fields, and none of them feared man. Adam himself didn't have to fear them. And then to water such a place, you, you had to have a spring that, that bubbled up into this great river that ran through the whole of the garden. And then we're told out into the world at large. 
but all those things, all those things pale in comparison to the last aspect of the garden. We are told that God walked in it with them. We're told that in the cool of the day, the Lord would fellowship with Adam and Eve. This garden was paradise. It truly was the garden of God. The image of the garden is the image of peace, security, satisfaction, every need met, every good thing available, and fellowship with our Creator. Here at the beginning was a place where heaven truly touched earth, where mankind walked with God and enjoyed Him fully. Truly, this was paradise, and I think that's what captures the minds of so many. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. You know, and you know, the first thing I think I would point out when we, you know, maybe transition to the climate and environment of Eden, as you've described a little bit here, but I'd point out, and I'm paraphrasing from Dr. David Jeremiah, but as we get into the description of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, 4, as we transition from that act of creation itself to the creation, we have the term Lord God used for the first time in the Bible. First time it's introduced, the, the name Yahweh is combined with the name God. Obviously, Yahweh is how God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. But previously in chapter 1, the term Elohim is used for God, a term that describes power, majesty, transcendence, transcendence, and certainly rightfully so. Then as we get into the description of Eden, we see this new name for the first time, Yahweh. As Again, as God would later reveal himself to Moses, this name is indicating that God is immediate. He's near. He's intimate. He's involved. How revealing of that, uh, of God's character. Not only is he powerful and transcendent, he's also immediate. He's also close by. Um, and he was near. He was intimately involved with Adam and Eve for a while. You know, and then Genesis 2 goes on to describe Eden, as you pointed out, you know, several things. As you, as you mentioned, it was water from a mist that rose up. And we would assume this would be warm water, right? Not, you know, you ever been into the Pacific Ocean there off the coast of San Diego? It's freezing cold. I think this would be nice and warm and soothing. Um, but again, we're, we're describing a world that's before the fall of man, before sin entered the world. You know, and we're also told here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, that God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And certainly we'll talk more about that later. But one thing also I'd point out is that the garden was in Eden. You know, we think of it, the garden of Eden, and Eden being whether it's a city, state, a region, or an area, the garden was in that area. And obviously we have a river flowing out from Eden where it was separated. And we have this, this great diversity of animal life, as you touched on, Pastor. We have at least thousands of kinds, thousands of different animals at this point in time. And as you mentioned, there was this is before sin entered the world. Um, I would imagine Adam and Eve probably got to pet a lion without worrying about getting their hand bit off. Maybe even swim with the sharks. Perhaps they even got to ride a brontosaurus. Who knows? Because at this time, like you mentioned, there's no fear. There's no dread. Immaculate trees and vegetations. I think of the San Diego Zoo. You know, when I, every time I've been there. It's like, um, man, this this must be reminiscent to what Eden could have been like. But even that doesn't do it justice. You've got all these beautiful trees, this beautiful vegetation, and all these exotic animals. And, you know, they just do it right. But still, that fails in comparison 
And perhaps to you golf fans out there, Augusta National is known for its immaculate care, gardens, trees, beautiful golf holes. But still, that wouldn't have done Eden justice. So point being, it was fertile, a symbol of fertility. Uh, we see promises in Ezekiel to restore the land of Israel to a fertile place like Eden. Then in Joel chapter 2, we have the opposite, judgment on the land to make it desolate as it was currently being referenced to being fertile as Eden would have been. All right, so apparently I missed out because uh, my greatest hope at a zoo was riding on an elephant. I didn't know that dinosaurs were a possibility there. That's a little bit of Jurassic World back then. Great description, though. Great description. Appreciate it. Yeah, we'll we'll touch on that later in a, a later episode. But yeah, I think dinosaurs might have been a very interesting possibility. And, you know, I think that there's several references to what could be construed as dinosaurs in the Old Testament as well. You know, so another thing you... Which, which, which will be a future episode, by the way, so stay tuned. Absolutely. So, Pastor Eric, you mentioned food. And Adam and Eve were allowed to eat the seeds and the fruit of all these trees except for one. Now, to me, that doesn't sound very appealing. I would rather not have fruit. I'd rather not have seeds truth be told. However, we're also told that they cultivated the land. And one thing I'm going to point out here in a bit is I'm going to argue that their knowledge was very sophisticated, a lot more so than ours today. And I, I think, and I think you've referenced this before, Pastor, is that the further we get from the fall, the dumber we get as a human race. And I think there's a lot to be said from that. You know, you just look at the Old Testament priests and how they could recite the whole book of Isaiah, if you will. And I mean, my goodness, that's something I don't know that we're capable of doing today. But anyway, when you think about the food, it on first glance, it doesn't really sound exciting to me. But if they cultivated, they could probably make guacamole out of an avocado. And I'm, you know, paraphrasing, obviously. Or how about chocolate from the cocoa bean? So I'm I, what I'm getting at is even though it may not sound too appealing, the fruits and seeds, I'm bet that it was probably pretty tasty. I'm getting pretty hungry right now. Absolutely. Some some guacamole sounds really nice. Obviously, the climate, uh, we can, I believe, assume that it's warm, it's comfortable, warm enough for the diversity of plant life to thrive. And again, this is before the fall, before sin entered the world, before any type of destruction. But again, you know, based on the description of the Bible, it sounds like it's a warm place. And I, I go back to San Diego, you know, kind of just a perfect climate, perfect atmosphere, if you will. Uh, not too hot, not too cold. The sun shines on you, but it's not oppressive like Texas in the summer. Very true. And they did not need clothes. So, I mean, they were comfortable there. We would imagine, you know, sunny and 75. Absolutely. You know, and another thing I'd point out about the garden was Adam and Eve themselves. What did they do? Well, we know that they worked. We know that they worshiped. We know that they experienced true rest, true spiritual life, as, as Dr. Jeremiah pointed out. They weren't worried about paying their mortgage. They weren't worrying about putting their kids through college. They weren't worried about where their next meal was coming from, the anxieties that we have in the world today. They didn't know any of that. They experienced that true rest that's talked about time and time again in the Bible. And how do we know they worked? Because we're told that they worked. God put them there in Eden to work it and take care of it. God planted, but Adam and Eve cultivated. And also they worshiped God. 
They had true fellowship with God that was undistorted. They saw God as he is, something that we've not experienced today. And I would also, again, argue that their knowledge was immense. It was yet to be corrupted by sin, yet to be corrupted uh, by the fall. And I say this because we're told that God brought every animal to Adam to name. Now, currently there's 8.7 million animals or what have you in the world today. Now, there's probably more today than there were back then, but certainly there would have been thousands, right? And think about the intellect and brain power that must have, and creativity that must have had to name all these animals. I couldn't do that. I couldn't either. It's a lot of kinds that that God brought before him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, so their knowledge was immense. I think, you know, it wasn't corrupted by sin. You know, we're told that... We, what do we use, 10% of our brains today? Perhaps they had a greater percent. We don't, we don't know. I'm speculating, of course. But I'm arguing that, and I would you know, suggest that Adam and Eve were more intelligent than I am today. Gone through many, many generations of sin and corruption. So there's, it's a lot, of, a lot of good. I think that's a good thought. If Adam and Eve had it so good, then the question becomes, why did they leave? Why did they leave the garden? Who would want to leave the garden. Well, in in truth, they did not choose to leave. They were kicked out. And we begin to understand this by looking at the two special trees that existed within this garden. Uh, The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of life, we, we don't know much about the tree of life except that its fruit is attached to the idea of immortality. To eat from this tree was to possess life. Now, whether it was you only had to eat from the tree once or perhaps multiple times to sustain life, the idea of the tree was this. Mankind was dependent upon the Lord for their continued existence. And so this tree then is a sign that he was providing for them. And the concept is this. Adam and Eve were to understand that they were dependent beings. Mankind is dependent. God alone is independent. And so the tree, in looking to the tree for life, was really looking to God for life. You know, and and as humans, especially in our culture today, we don't like that concept of being dependent. We value independence. I mean, even the, the Beatles song, Help, you know, talks about independence, independent. We don't, we don't like that, but that's not what God designed us to be. He designed us to be dependent. And you look at, you know, the model prayer, give us this day, our daily bread. Uh, we're, we're, we are to be dependent upon God. And that's just, that's something that our society has lost. The further we've gotten away from this event here, it's something that we've lost. And it's just, it's almost gone out of control, independence, 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 but that's certainly not what God has designed us to be. And that, I didn't even think of that verse, but you're absolutely right. The idea of the tree of life is very much the same idea as give us this day or daily bread. We're to look to God daily, but just as we struggle with that, apparently apparently Adam and Eve did too. And, And that really leads us to the second tree that existed within the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and this tree, we're told, is the only thing that was forbidden in the whole of the garden. This tree and its fruit, that were both real, 
it, they pointed to a larger issue in play. Would we choose to trust in God as good? Would we be dependent upon him? Freely seeing and acknowledging his greatness, his, his glory, his goodness, or would we turn away? Would we doubt his word and choose disobedience? You see, in the possibility then of turning showed that the worship of Adam and Eve would not be compelled. It was to be freely chosen. They were to freely choose God. And although they didn't have a complete understanding of, of good and evil, after all, I mean, evil did not exist in the world at this point, they did have an understanding of death, at least the concept of ceasing to be. Absolutely. And they did have this concept of death. And how do we know this? Because God told them if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. Now, at this time, there had not been death on the earth. So they probably don't have the idea of death like we do, but they certainly understood or had some knowledge that things as we know them will end. And, you know, we're, we're steeped in death. I mean, it's, you know, we, we understand that now, but I don't, I, I have to wonder what that must have been like. And another point, you know, I hear from skeptics quite a bit is why even put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place? And to that, I would argue and I would answer, God wanted Adam and Eve to love them because he's God, not because of what he can do for them or, you know, what this or that. Um, he, he wanted them to love him freely. He wanted them to choose to love him. Obviously, they, they fell, but, you know, that's, that's how I'd answer that question. And, and the tree, the two, the two trees showed that choice. Would they trust in God and live? partake of the tree of life and live, or would they disobey God and die, in essence, doubting his word and taking what was forbidden? And with such a clear choice, you would think that they would stay far away. But we're told that the serpent, Satan, entered the garden's pristine environment and tempted them to believe that God lied to them, that God was not telling them the truth. And now, many people will look at this and, and think perhaps a talking serpent was a little unusual, but, you know, and, and to that I would ask, you know, we've talked about this before, and, and for our audience here, interested to get your thoughts, Pastor, but how long do you think that Adam and Eve were actually in the garden? Not very long, and and I think that that plays into this particular incident as, as well. Remember, they are kicked out of the garden before they even have a child. And God's creation mandate for them, one of his creation mandates, was to be fruitful and multiply. Um, in essence, they were to have children. But by the time they leave the garden, they have not had a child, which means that, that the world is still relatively new to them. Everything around them is new. And thus, if you don't know what to expect and, and you don't know how the world operates, then you know, a talking animal perhaps coming up to you, a serpent is still just one more new thing that you've never encountered before. So I, I think it was very early on in the garden when they fell. Uh, absolutely. I would, I would totally agree with that. And again, to just my opinion here, but we don't see any indication that they're bothered by the fact that the snake is talking to them. 
you know, today a, a snake slithers in and says, hey, Brad, what's up? I'm going to be like, whoa, that's not normal. But they, we don't see any indication of that. They didn't think it was, it was weird at all. And, you know, certainly they, they would have known that animals make a different type of noise, different type of language than they did, but they don't seem bothered by it. So I would think if they were in there a hundred years, um, they would have at least said, why is this animal talking to us? But we don't see that. So I, I would absolutely agree. I don't think they were in there very long at all. Um, everything was still fresh and, and new and good. They didn't even have any reason to doubt, but they did. And so as they listened to the serpent, as they listened to Satan, they had a choice to make. Eat the forbidden fruit or leave it be. But they both ate. And when they did, the knowledge of good and evil overcame them. Their, their eyes were open to the woeful choice that they had made. And they hid. They did hide. And, you know, you have to wonder, too, we're not told in Scripture, but certainly they mu there must have been such a great sense of regret. I would anticipate they sojourned in their life after they were expelled, and you know, when they passed by Eden, um, they must have it must have been just a regret like we cannot fathom. You know, an interesting point that I heard Dr. Robert Jeffers make is that when they fell and things changed instantly. Um, he made the argument basically that they got cold. Not only were they ashamed and spiritually naked, but we're told that the Lord God is walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And I believe Dr. Jeffers said something to the effect that they got a shiver. They, they experienced coldness for the first time. What a contrast that must have been to the life that they had previously enjoyed. And now that's all gone. And, you know, they listened to satan if you will and another thing i hear from skeptics and non-believers a lot today you everybody hears this but it's it's god's boring god restricts christians christians don't have fun and i would argue nothing could be further from the truth look at the stars at night you know you get out from the the city pollution and i mean that my goodness that's not boring Look at the mountains. Look at the diversity of animal life. You ever look at a giraffe, a hippopotamus? God is a God of excitement. He's a God of create creativeness. He's a God of enthusiasm. He's not boring. And, you know, I'd ask, what has Satan ever created? And the answer really is, I mean, nothing. Evil, evil does not have the capacity to create, only the capacity to twist and destroy. And that's what Satan sought to do. I mean, if you think about everything that they had, you mentioned the beauty of, of the world that God has created, and we delight in beauty. Uh, you think about just the fruit and the, the food that God provides. It doesn't have to taste good, but it's a blessing that it does. Even a purpose with, with working and, and cultivating the garden and the creation mandate. They had all these good things. And Satan made them think they were missing out, but he didn't have anything to add, because evil never does. All he can do is twist it. And he convinced them to partake. And they did freely. And, and you're right, in that, in that moment, everything changed because we often think of this world, but we've lived within a world that has only ever been under the curse of sin. They saw the other side and then had to deal with the loss of it. And they hid. And, and God had promised death to them if they ate. And 
and God found them in the garden. God confronted them. But here we find that in the confrontation, there is both God's justice and God's mercy. Now, it's true. They, they immediately died spiritually. At that moment, Adam is, is kind of the head of the human race. Uh, all of us fell in Adam. We are spiritually dead. But they didn't die immediately in their physical bodies. God sustained them. And with that, there was hope. Uh, he indeed kind of pointed to the future that, that even in the judgment, that there is hope here. But they were kicked out of the garden. They, they were forbidden from returning. They would no longer have access to the tree of life. They would one day die, but perhaps worst of all, and most certainly worst of all, they were cast out of the presence of God. With shame over them both, they carefully went out, and paradise was lost. You know, and I would also add here too, and we see God's character. Yes, God is love, but he's also just. And, you know, you see that on full display right here. He is just. There's a consequence to disobeying God. There is a consequence to our rebellion. And and certainly he did banish them from his presence. He banished them from the garden. But you also see his character in this, in that he didn't destroy them. He certainly could have, and he would have been justified in doing so. But instead, he immediately hints at a Savior that is to come. He he makes a way. He's, he's starting to get to work making a way for mankind to come back to him. It certainly didn't have to do that. You know, that's, that's just truly remarkable because, you know, it, it shows his character versus ours. Because when someone does us wrong, our first thought is, I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to hit you back harder than you hit me. God didn't do that. Now, certainly, he, you know, he, they paid the price, but he begins this path for them to come back. Obviously, on his terms, obviously, it required the sacrifice of his son, but he does that, and he certainly didn't have to. And so we see that he's just. And, you know, it's also funny to me. I, I kind of laugh, you know, when God confronts him. You know, what's the first thing Adam does? He blames God. The woman you put here, uh, you know, that's... I, I kind of chuckle at that because that's what my kids do. When I get on, they, they blame me or they blame somebody else. And, you know, talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, you'll take them, you take your kids somewhere and you say, okay, you can do this, but not that. What's the first thing they do? They try and test the boundary, get away with as much as they can. It's, I guess, being a parent uh, really makes me have a much greater appreciation for this narrative here in the Garden of Eden. And much like with children, and, and God certainly teaches us about himself through the institutions he's created, he loves them despite the fact that they have sinned. And, and so even though they are kicked out, he is making a way. And, and that's important to note. We could not get back in on our own. As a matter of fact, as they left, the garden, we're told that the Lord placed two cherubim, uh, or cherubim at the, the entrance with flaming swords to prevent anyone from coming back and trying to eat of the tree of life. In other words, the way of life is barred. The presence of God is barred. There's nothing we can do to re-enter paradise on our own, but there is hope that although we've lost Eden, that Eden perhaps 
can be returned to. And this is the hope that a lot of people have had seen here in the garden, in the story of the garden. Absolutely. Um, and just one quick point here on, on cherubim. Um, our society today, you know, you, you think of a cherubim and you think of a little fan angel with a, with a harp and wearing a diaper. That's not what the Bible tells us they were like. These were massive creatures. They were ter- They are terrifying. Far cry from the, the picture that our society has today of these little, little chubby little angels up playing harps in the clouds. These were certainly terrifying creatures. And the accounts of when humans interacted with them, we see this sense of dread and terror come over us. So um, I could imagine, you know, if Adam and Eve tried to get anywhere near the garden, it must have been a terrifying sight for them after they were driven. What, a, what an amazing sight flaming swords. I can't even fathom, but I'm sure it must have struck terror in front of anybody that would have dared come anywhere close. It's a pretty good deterrent. And in all of the descriptions of angels that you're talking about, yeah, whether Ezekiel or Genesis or uh, New Testament, Luke, and, and these appearances, it's frightening. And so here you have these fiery beings with fiery swords barring the way back. So we've been cast out of Eden. So, you know, interesting story we've been talking about, and one thing to bring up now as we kind of transition is the secular world says Eden is a myth. Uh, You recall when we were talking about Dr. Magnus saying that Eden's a myth, that it deals with God's presence, which is true to a certain extent, because what made Eden Eden was that God was there. You know, that's what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God, but so much of the secular world today says this is a myth, but I think the Bible says otherwise, and I know the Bible says otherwise. You know, this is not poetry. This is a narrative. Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. He's the author of Genesis, and you read here in Genesis chapter 2, he's describing an actual physical place that his current readers would have been aware of. You know, we can assume Moses is writing roughly, what, the mid-1400s B.C., some, somewhere in there? Uh, 1450, 1400 B.C., yeah. Give or take. It's it's not poetry. It's a narrative. He's describing places that the Israelites sojourning through the wilderness trying to find the promised land would have been familiar with. We, By all accounts, he's writing in the present tense. This isn't something that, you know, he's. it's certainly not something that he's making up. And we can certainly infer from, you know, the accounts of the Israelites grumbling against him. They wanted to stone him at times. They they were angry with him. Do you think if he's sitting here telling a fairy tale, they would not use that as ammo to get rid of him? But no, certainly that's not the case. He's describing an actual physical place, you know. And, for example, Pastor, if you're, you're telling me about, you know, say your favorite pizza place back in your home state of Alabama, and you're trying to describe to me where it is, you're not going to be making up some landmarks that don't exist. You're going to say, hey, it's on the corner between the McDonald's and the Home Depot, something where I could find. You're going to tell me the actual physical highway to get there, the actual address. And that's what Moses is doing here is he's giving us this account. Um, and it's it's not made up. It's, it's evidence that these are landmarks that his audience would have been familiar with. Not to mention, I mean, in, in addition to that, as you're talking about that, 
the fact of the matter is, I mean, he describes Adam as a real person, right? I mean, if, if you read through the book of Genesis and, and you continue on just really through the whole of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, he places Adam and then talks about his descendants, is his genealogy here. And so, in essence, he traces people back to a literal Adam and Eve. Absolutely. Literal Adam and Eve. And, you know, and certainly... A lot of even biblical scholars suggest that, uh, you know, we, we can't understand, we can't know these landmarks because they were destroyed in the flood. But I still think that even after that, we'll certainly talk about this more in episode two, but, you know, he, he names the Tigris River. He names the Euphrates River. And if, if these weren't the actual rivers, I don't think he would have put them in there, especially when he's talking in the present tense. He didn't say it was there. He says it is there. And you know, I mean, that, there's something to be said for that. You know, again, if this is not reality, if it's not based in facts, there were enough people there that would have said, no, this doesn't, this is not the case. And we wouldn't even have the book to begin with, right? I mean, if he's, if he's just putting a myth out there, well, we're not, that wouldn't have survived all these thousands of years. They would have been corrected on the spot and it would have been thrown in the trash, if you will. But we don't see that. We see history corroborating this and we see an actual physical place actual physical beings actual physical man and woman that had perfect fellowship with god and they disobeyed god they were driven out and we see their genealogy mentioned in genesis i mean who <laughs> you, you know you read the the genealogies there in genesis who could make something like that up if it's not i mean seriously that takes a heck of a sometimes a little tedious to read because of the details right that that are in there and that brings up a, another good point a lot of myths from ancient cultures usually deal with explaining the functions of people. Why do we do this? Why do we do things that way? But when it comes to the Bible, it can describe functions, but the fact of the matter is the theology, the truth that's being taught is always rooted and attached to history because we have a God that interacts in history. So it's basically saying you can look back and see these things, and God was teaching this truth, but he's also revealed the truth through historical happenings. And you go to the New Testament, Paul, as, as he begins to talk in, in Acts 17, he claims, you know, God made every man on earth from what? From one man. Uh, indeed, the biblical writers, the Christ himself, looks back and, and speaks of the Old Testament as history. So if we can conclude that Eden was a real place, as we obviously believe, we would expect to find some sort of evidence independent of the Bible. Pastor, do we have any evidence outside the Bible for Eden or this garden of God? We do. And this is really kind of, I guess, where the search begins in earnest. We, we know what the garden is, the purpose of the garden, that it was real. And so the question is, what memory of this garden persisted? You, you would have expected then that as Adam and Eve had children and their children had children, that some remnant of the story would survive. Uh, now, of course, this all would bottleneck later in Noah and his family. But even then, as Noah's children went out, you would still expect some stories of the garden to persist. Stories that wouldn't be accurate, per se, because the farther you get from the actual event without pure knowledge. Uh, you've got people now that are removed by a great deal of time from the garden. 
as well as a great deal of, of separation from God himself. So when you add paganism and time, uh, you're going to have a twisting of the story. But you would still expect to see images like a garden paradise, a tree of life, fall in judgment. But it's kind of like an ancient game of telephone. If you remember as, as a kid, when one person would create a story or a statement, and they'd whisper it to the next person and to the next person, and by the end of the line, you saw just how much it had changed, how much of the original was still there. Well, that's kind of what we find in antiquity, uh, is that we do find images of the garden, images of the fall, but they're twisted. Uh, and we would expect that for pagan peoples. And, and the stuff that does survive, and, and it's good also to note, a lot of stuff doesn't survive from ancient times. Majority of knowledge is lost simply decayed over time, uh, still underneath the ground, or just destroyed. But what we do have, we know a little bit about the history of the world. And, and let me just share with you just a, a few things here. There, there's an ancient story uh, called Adapa and the Food of Life. And whether it's actually pronounced Adapa or not, I, I don't know. But this was, this was a story originally found in uh, Egypt. And I want to say Armana, perhaps, um, but also we found it later in Assyrian libraries. And, and it dates back, really, to some of the earliest societies, uh, the Akkadian people, the Sumerian people. But the myth tells us of this man named Adapa. And some people think that the root here shares some similarities with Adam, Adapa. And he ruled over the ancient city of Eridu, which, according to the Sumerians, was the very first city. And, and we, even in archaeology today, consider it one of the oldest cities in the world. It's close to where also Ur of the Chaldees will later be built, that Abraham comes from. Well, the story tells us in the text that Adapa decides to go fishing one day, and a fierce wind overturns his boat. Uh, he's not too happy about this and gets angry. Apparently what created the wind, according to the ancient Sumerians, was a big wing somewhere that, that would flap, and, and he goes and he breaks this wing. And that angers the god Anu. And so Anu calls him to give an account of his action. But we're told that before he goes to see Anu, another god called Ea, or Ea, which is just spelled E-A, and this god supposedly gave Adapa wisdom. And he counsels Adapa not to eat any food offered to him by Anu. So after flattering the two guardians at the gate, he goes in to see Anu who offers him food. And he follows Ea's advice and refuses the food only to find out that had he eaten the food, he would have received eternal life. And thus he's cast out to live the rest of his days as a mortal man. And if you notice the similarities, you have someone who promises Adapa wisdom. You have one that offers him life but he listens to one and finds that he's been deceived. Thus, he's cast out to one day face death. Obviously, the story originated somewhere. And, you know, the Canaanites also have similar myths. Even there's there's myths from Africa. Anybody who's ever been to Disney's Animal Kingdom, you've, you've ridden the safari ride, you know, the, the big tree out in the, the middle of the safari ride that's roots are, you know, the roots are the top and the, the branches are in the bottom. That tree is called the tree of life. And, you know, they tell you the little story there about the creator put the tree, you know, upside down. I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the account. But you see all these cultures around the world have a, I don't know if cre creation 
account or creation myth, but they have these tales of a garden where the deity came to dwell. And certainly as you get further from the source, you see corruption happen. And, you know, I, I would, as you're talking about that, Pastor, I'm reminded of the accounts of Christ's resurrection in the New Testament. You have the gospel accounts. They're very simple. They're to the point. They're concise. And then it's the further in time, you start having these other accounts where it's still talking about the, the structure of the story, but you can see legend gets in and corrupt for like some of them. Christ is like 30 feet tall and he's coming out of the tomb with the cross. Now, obviously that's, you know, similar to some of these pagan accounts. That's not the case, but they point being they originated from somewhere. And you can see the account in Genesis is concise. It's to the point. And then it goes out from there and you start seeing pagan corruption, if you will. Yeah. And these embellishments with even some people saying that in the story of Adapa, that the one that gave wisdom is the Satan character in the story, and he almost appears as good somewhat in some of the interpretations there. Thus, paganism turning the story on its head. And and we have another one popular as the uh, of ancient stories is the Epic of Gilgamesh. But over the years, as we've known of the story, more of it has been discovered as different libraries um, have been uncovered in ancient cities. Um, but this is a Sumerian myth, originally found in, in Nineveh, I want to say in the library of Ashurbanipal. But Tablet 5 had been a little bit incomplete, but during the Iraq War, uh, starting in 2003 and on, some artifacts had come up that were real, and, and one of these was kind of a finished Tablet 5 with it. And, and the story tells of Gilgamesh, he's a mythic hero. And during his travels, he comes across what is known as the sacred cedar forest. And the description of the garden is given to us this way in, in Tablet 5. This is how it reads. They stood in awe at the forest, staring at the heights of the cedars, staring at the entrance to the forest. A path was worn where Humbaba came and went, the way was made ready, and the road was accommodated. They were looking at the Cedar Mountain, the God's dwelling place, the goddesses exalted abode. The cedar raised its luxuriant boughs over the face of the lake. Its shade was inviting, altogether pleasing, entangled thorns and entwined canopy. There was no way amidst the densely packed cedars. There were cedar saplings as far as the eye could see. Cypresses almost as far. For 100 feet high, the cedar was covered with knots, resin like drops of rain streaming away in channels. Birds were ceaselessly a twitter throughout the forest, echoing back and forth, reverberating chitter. Cicadas modulating a cry, they were always singing, belting out, the wood pigeon, the turtle dove replying. The clatter of the stork, the forest revels, the forest brims with joy. Female monkeys shout, young monkeys whoop like an ensemble of singers and percussion. Well, as the story goes on, we find Gilgamesh and his companion, Enkidu, seek to enter the forest where the god whom Baba walked. They slay the monstrous guardians at the entrance and then work to slay the guard, god of the garden, eventually destroying the paradise, cutting down the tallest cedar to bring home with them. And again, you find a paradise, a god walking in the garden, two guardians, and the spoiling of it by man. And, and here even, almost again, a turning of it into a pagan story where the taking out of the god of the garden was a good thing rather than an evil thing. 
And, you know, again, uh, as you mentioned, we have this this narrative of a garden where the deity dwells and, you know, you see the the pagan corruption in there. But again, I would argue it originated from somewhere. Obviously, we know that's that's Genesis. But wow, fascinating story. I'd also add Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, also has a flood narrative as well. Uh, it does, which hopefully in a future episode we'll take a look at with with the flood. And one final one I, I did want to mention that's not a story, but um, is actually a seal. It was a cylindrical seal that is both been called the Adam and Eve seal as well as the temptation seal. And this is a, a seal that, that dates back to the, the kingdom of Sumer, the Sumerian people. And it's been found. And the image on it, although many people try to explain it away, saying, well, it's just a scene of a banquet. But if you look at the image, uh, it's pretty amazing. In the middle of the image, you have what is a tree. And on the lower branches hang fruit. And on the right side of the tree sits a man. On the left hand side of the tree sits a woman. And behind the woman is an image of a serpent. And so very clearly, in early societies, you have the image of the garden. And there's another one even found in an older site, um, also called an Adam and Eve type seal. But this one, which, which chipped away, it's not as easy to see, but it ultimately shows two figures, two unclothed figures bent down as if they're mourning, and behind them, a snake. And so we have these images that, that again, many people, if they want to explain them away, can try to explain them away. But you find time and time again images of a garden and of a fall of mankind. And, and that doesn't even mention, you know, the Enuma Elish, the Eridu Genesis that speak of, of similar inter, uh, of imagery. And even if you go beyond that, the picture of a garden of God in which paradise is found, it permeated the ancient world from the garden of Hesperides in the West, which was a Greek myth, uh, to Shambhala uh, out in India in the East, the Garden of Eden is not some localized fairy tale. This is a real place to which people pointed. So with all this talk about Eden, that naturally brings us to the question, what happened to it? Was it destroyed? Does it still exist? Has God preserved it and just hid it? So all questions we're going to look at is and i think those three possibilities are really what we have to come to terms with on on there there is a very real possibility god just removed it god destroyed it Uh, but it it seems as in genesis that it's not destroyed yet we'll talk about that a little bit more next week but it could have been destroyed and and god just removed it and yet other times we see in scripture where god will take things for instance, the tree of life that is referenced in the pages of Genesis is once again touched upon in Revelation. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 4, uh, we read these words, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse in the throne of God, and if the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And so, could it be that God removed the tree of life, removed other aspects, and took it to heaven, you know, preserved it somehow there? Or the third option, which hopefully is what we're going to be taking a look at next week, is did God preserve it here? 
could it still exist in the way? Maybe out of sight? It's still existing in our world. Our world is a large place, even though it may seem small with modern technology. There's a lot of unexplored places out there. Indeed there are. And, you know, to echo your point, could God have taken it away? God has certainly taken away people. Enoch, he could not be found. God raptured him away. Um, Elijah also was taken. So God certainly has done that with, with people in the past. What's to say he could not have done that with, uh, with places as well? You know, and so we'll explore next time as well some of the locations of where it might have been, where it may be. And some of those are, are interesting. And just to kind of give you a preview of that, one of them is the North Pole. And I can hear you chuckling now across the airwaves out there. But there's actually quite a lot of scholarship that's, that's gone into this thought. We'll explain that more next time. Another possibility is that it was located in Jerusalem. Mount Moriah, there's a Jewish legend that, you know, where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And there's a legend, Jewish legend there, that that's where God breathed the breath of life into Adam. So we'll survey that. Um, also, there's uh, a theory that it's in, you know, kind of in what was known as Mesopotamia there, the Fertile Crescent, kind of at the head of the Persian Gulf. And also another very, very interesting theory that it was located in Turkey, Armenia. We'll get into all that next time. So hope you'll join us, and we look forward to continuing our discussion. Pastor. I hope that uh, you've enjoyed this episode, which has dealt with really kind of out of the garden. And next episode will be into the garden. Can we find it? Uh, and to close today, just wanted to be able to share with you a quote from, from Tolkien on the Garden of Eden. And this is what he had to say. While Genesis is separated by... We do not know how many sad, exiled generations will fall. But certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with the sense of exile.